Good morning, Grace Gospel Church. It's so great to see you all here this morning. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. That boggles the mind. I don't get it. I don't get it. Why? Why would he do that? One word explains it all, and it's part of the name of this local church. Grace. Grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We did nothing for it. It's all grace, unearned, unmerited. That's what grace is, an undeserved act of kindness. And no greater kindness has ever been shown to God's sinful creature man, to the human race, than that grace that was shown on the cross of Jesus Christ. Before I get into the introduction to the message, I just want to mention two things. You heard about the water. It looks like there's some iron in it. I tested the water yesterday in the kitchen. Crystal clear. There must be a sediment filter or something that filters that out, but the water's crystal clear. So the coffee, everything else should be fine. Have no worries about that. All right? Uh, Secondly, I can't tell you how happy I am that this Young Mothers or Women's Study is starting up again. It was mostly young mothers pre-COVID. I used to see all the little children running around. What a blessing they are. And the women, that study was so well attended. So I I really want to uh, give thanks to God and thank our sister Lisa Riley, uh, Paul and Claire D'Amano's daughter, for starting that up again. And i got to tell you something. I, I was asked to take a look at the book and approve it. And so I looked at the table of contents. I did biographical research on the author. I checked any reviews that I could find on the book. And I'll tell you, just looking at that table of contents, I was blown away. I was so impressed with the way the author lays out parenting and proper biblical parenting. I was so impressed with it that I spent $3.99 for the Kindle copy because I want to read it. Yeah, my kids are grown, okay? The youngest is 40, all right? But it may help me in shepherding someone else. So I, I, I am so pleased with the wisdom and discernment that our sister Lisa showed in the selection of that book for the study. So... Often what is needed so that, depending on the case, you don't get sick or you don't get lost is a fixed point of reference. I remember my first open ocean dive, deep dive, when I was much younger. 
And I remember going out. The seas were not real rough. It was a two-foot chop. But the dive, after we were down a while, everyone had to come back up. The seas were getting rougher, unexpectedly rough. Waves were swelling to six feet. Not huge, but big enough that we should turn around and head back in. And I remember how motion sick, seasick I got. I was this lovely shade of green, I think. But I remember having to keep my eye on the horizon as the boat is pitching and rolling a bit. And that fixed point kept me from being sick. But I really felt <laughs> awful. But it was that fixed point of the horizon as the ship would move that kept me from becoming real ill and losing it. Now, when I learned orienteering, how to find a path through a forest or over land using a map, a compass, and your sight. And even without the map and compass, you might only have, in some cases, you had a, could only use them at the start. What you wanted to find were two fixed points of reference. You saw your destination. Maybe it was the peak, the rocky peak of that low mountain or that high hill. And that's where you were going to get to. But you'd find another reference point near it. And as you started out, you would try to find a point near you that you could line up with that fixed point of reference, which was in line with the destination. If you veered, that point, your first point, would be off to the side. It wouldn't line up with the second point. As you came near that first point, you'd find another one that would line up. And this is how you would keep on a straight line as much as possible, given terrain, to your destination. So you did not get lost. So you arrived there as quickly as you could. Sometimes you, move, you had to move off because of obstacles. The way you'd get back on is to line up those two fixed points of reference. We're either right-handed or left-handed, most of us. Same thing. We're right-sided, left-sided. You'd walk in circles. Your strong leg. If you're right-handed, it's usually your right leg. You'll walk in circles if you don't have those fixed points of reference. This passage today gives us at least two fixed points of reference. The goal, the destination, the ultimate point of reference. The supreme, ultimate example, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to give us other points of reference along the way that will guide us unmistakably 
to the goal, to the finish, where we want to end up in the arms of the Lord. We'll see how this comes out in this morning's passage. The title of today's message is to hold fast by focusing on Jesus. He is the immovable, ultimate, supreme, fixed point of reference. The example that we're to follow hard after, that we're to focus on and never lose sight of. Jesus is revealed in these verses as the ultimate example of faith. And we're going to see that as we begin this message. God is revealed as the loving father of his children. Now, when we get to those verses on discipline, it may not seem like it. But we'll understand that God the Father's discipline of his children is very different than a lot of earthly parents' discipline of their children. If you take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this. God wants you to focus on Jesus so that you may not grow weary or discouraged in your Christian walk. Let's get right into the message. And the first thing we want to see is that we focus, we should focus on Jesus like other faithful ones did. Remember I said when you're orienteering over land, sometimes you need to have at least two, sometimes three points of focus lined up in order to be going straight in order to stay on path to the destination. Focus on Jesus. We're going to see what these other focal points are. They're the faithful ones. Let the faithful example of others inspire you to hold fast in faith. The writer begins the chapter with, therefore. What is he referring to? We don't even have to guess. We know it's always something that came before the therefore. But here he actually tells us, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And he uses the word cloud, conjuring up the image. Remember of the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah that was in the Holy of Holies? He purposely chooses this word to remind them that these witnesses reflect the glory of God in their faith. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Remember in chapter 11, those two wonderful messages from our brother David. The writer brings out in chapter 11, he begins with Abel. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. From Abel, he goes to Enoch. And then he goes to Noah, then to Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and then to Moses. And then he says, time will fail me to tell you, if I were to tell you of, of Gideon. And uh, he includes Rahab, and then Gideon, and then Samson, Barak, Jephthah, of David, and the prophets. He names all these. And you're thinking, Paul, these are great heroes of the faith. I'm nothing like them. How can I be faithful like they were? I mean, look at Enoch. God, he was, God took him up. God, he was so 
blessed by God. God was so pleased with Enoch that he took him up. You're right. But you know, God is one day going to snatch up his children in the same way. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, snatched up, raptured to meet the Lord and together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. You're going to be snatched up. Yeah, but I'm nothing like Enoch. What does the scripture say about Enoch? He walked with God. No miracles. No amazingly fantastic, mind-blowing thing. He walked with God. Isn't that what you and I are called to do? How about Rahab? She welcomed the spies, as her brother David told us. He, she sided with God, with God's people. Let the faithful example of others inspire you to hold fast in your faith. When I was a young Christian, I can tell you one of the most inspiring things I used to do. I used to read biographical stories of missionaries. They so inspired me what these men and women of faith would give up to proclaim the gospel to others, the sacrifices they would make to serve the Lord, and how the Lord used them mightily to bring others to faith. I encourage you, I, I, I exhort you, read some missionary stories about how God used others. These are more modern-day cloud of witnesses. And then when we come to chapter 13, he's going to give a third witness. I mean, this one is very humbling for me personally, very burdensome. He's going to say in Hebrews 13 addressing everyone that he's writing to. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Paul said that to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I'm sure there was much more to imitate in that Paul than this Paul or any of your leaders. Nonetheless, God does command that we contemplate the outcome of the way of life of our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who lead us. We have a great cloud of witnesses. I, I can tell you, when I would disciple with young men, I am so inspired by their faith and their devotion to Christ. Uh, out in California, <laughs> I, I discipled a young guy. He was 30 years old. Okay, I'm old enough to be his grandfather. He was a gangbanger, Mauricio. He had all his prison tats all over him. 
even his upper lip. He wore a beard. As hot as California, Southern California was, even when it was 112, 114 long sleeve shirts because of all of his ink and what it represented. When he came to Christ, he became a total new man. What an inspiration he was. What a privilege to disciple him and show him God's truth and how to live out the Christian life. I think maybe I learned more from him than from me, even though, than he did from me, even though I was doing the teaching. There are clouds of witnesses, faithful children of God. Look at them. Imitate their faith. God is working in them and through them to show us how to live out the Christian life. Don't miss those witnesses, those faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. You can't hold fast to Christ if you're holding fast to sin. It's not possible. The writer says, therefore, in the same verse... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now we get the sin, the sin which so easily entangles us. We fall into it so readily. We sang a traditional hymn, How Great Thou Art. There's another traditional hymn I love a lot. In fact, some of it is taken out and put into one of the hymns that our music ministry does. I need thee every hour. I think about that hymn, and sometimes I'll pray those words to the Lord. Oh, Lord, I need you every hour or I will commit sin. I need you every minute or my lips may utter sin. I need you every second or my mind may contemplate sin. My desires may be sinful. My attitudes may be sinful. My motivation, even in good things, may be selfish and self-serving and sinful. I need you every hour, every minute, every second, a moment-by-moment reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God, the comforter that Jesus Christ sent to take his place. We understand the sin which so easily entangles us. The laying aside, though, is the characteristic of a child of God. They lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. What is the characteristic of the unsaved? Proverbs chapter 5. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. He doesn't cast away the sin that entangles. He doesn't even want to. He has no desire. His sin holds him fast. But it's not just sins. Lay aside every encumbrance. You know, often in training, I would wear ankle weights when I would run. Run five miles with ankle weights so that when I ran two miles in track, it would be that much easier. But I'll tell you one thing I didn't wear ankle weights for was my final fitness test to get out of boot camp. I didn't wear ankle weights. There was nothing to encumber me. I was getting out of boot camp one way or another. I wasn't going to repeat. 
a part of it. Ankle weights were not sinful. There's a lot in the Christian life which is not necessarily in and of itself sinful. It's not moral. It's not immoral. It's amoral. It has no morality in and of itself. It may be some kind of hobby, some kind of avocation, something that preoccupies us. In and of itself, it's not sinful. But it can be an encumbrance. And our attitude towards it, our desire for it, can become sinful, but it is not. It's an encumbrance. At some point, sometimes a hobby, an avocation, grows out of proportion, out of priority, starts to outrank in priority more important things in the Christian life. Lay aside those encumbrances as well. I'm not going to name any because I don't want to single anybody out. And I'm not going to name any because if I don't name yours, it's, you know, I'm off the hook. No, this is between you and the Lord. For me, I'll tell you what it is. TV. I don't own a television because I can't handle television. I used to record two auto races at the same time on different channels while I watched a third one, and then I could watch the other two later. In his great book, The Training of the Twelve, the author A.A. Bruce writes this. Self-control is the virtue of the strong. Abstinence is the virtue of the weak. I'm weak. I'm going to abstain from television. I may not even watch the Super Bowl today. Horror of horrors, right? I mean, what other game is there to watch after that? The season's over, right? But lay aside every encumbrance. Evaluate your life. What are the spiritual ankle weights that you're running with? That you're living out the Christian life? Those things which hold you back. The sin is easier to identify. Ask God to open your eyes to the spiritual ankle weights you're running with. Focus on Jesus and faithfully run. He says, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There it is, that fixed point. We know what the race is. We know what the track is, what the path is that we should be running. It's not a sprint. It's run with endurance. It's a lifelong marathon. Remember, he's writing to Jews who turned away from Judaism, professed belief in Jesus Christ, and now some of them, because of renewed persecution, were turning away or being tempted to turn away and go back to Judaism. He's telling, no, it's with endurance. This is the race. It's not a sprint. It's a lifelong marathon. You need endurance. And that endurance comes from the Holy Spirit. That faithfulness to continue on no matter what life throws your way, no matter what obstacle you need to go around or climb over. 
to get to the finish line to Jesus Christ. Focus on Jesus and faithfully run. Focus unwaveringly, unwaveringly on Jesus. He's waiting for you at the finish line. He's there with open arms. He's there to welcome you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author who began, the perfecter who finished on the cross. He said, it is finished. The work of salvation, he completed it all. Focus on him. He's waiting there for you. He's waiting to welcome you and to, for you to hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Focus on the ultimate example of Jesus. He gave other examples in chapter 11, the cloud of witnesses. In chapter 13, he's going to talk about those who led being a witness or a testimony on how to live right. Here, though, the ultimate example, fixing your eyes on Jesus. He is the one you never want to lose sight of. He is the fixed point, the horizon, that everything else moves around, but he never moves. Jesus, who instead of the joy set before him, your translation might say, who for the joy set before him. I'm going to have to get just a little technical here because I really want you to appreciate this. I translated the original Greek instead of. And that is a very legitimate translation. It is the preferred translation of that one Greek word. That Greek word is auntie. Not like auntie and uncle. Auntie. We get the English word anti from it. This Greek word auntie is on the front of antichristos, antichrist. Auntie doesn't necessarily mean against. We think of the Antichrist as against Christ. That's true. But the idea behind auntie is one thing answering to another thing. One thing in place of another thing. One thing substituted for another thing. One thing exchanged for another thing. The Antichrist is instead of Christ. The Antichrist is a substitution, a satanic substitution for Christ. It's not the real thing. Here, instead of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The following words of this verse. Instead of the joy, set before him, a single word in the Greek text. It means in the presence of. It means laying right there before. It's not something more distant. Who instead of the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down. The joy was not in the sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy is what he had in heaven before he became a man. It's the joy right there in front of him. Now, in Hebrews 11, it said something great about 
those individuals of faith, what they did, what they looked forward to, a heavenly city made without hands whose architect and builder is God. Moses, he did something incredible. Moses, by faith, chose ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Rather than have the pleasure of sin, he chose ill treatment with the people of God. No question, sin is wrong. Christ goes even further than Moses. He was surrounded by heavenly joy and bliss. Remember what happened to Paul the apostle? He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He says, I know a man. Well, it turns out that it's him. It slips later on, a few verses later. But he says, he starts out saying, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. That man was caught up to the third heaven, the the throne room of God. The third heaven was God's home in Jewish theology. And he saw things that it's not permitted any human to see. And he said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, there was given, not to him, but to me, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, lest I exalt myself. So great was this heavenly joy, this heavenly experience. This is what Christ experienced for all eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is what he experienced in heaven with the angels since creation. This is what he experienced with those who trusted in what he would do on the cross and what he did on the cross and who were martyr for their faith or died in the faith. He had all this joy set there right before him. The nearest thing to him is the joy. After that was the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. After that, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, I've actually heard people teach that it was for the joy that he would have after being resurrected and ascending to God. It's almost like they make it like a carrot dangling out in front of the nose of a donkey or a mule, and it strains to get it. Its tongue comes out trying to grab that carrot and pull it in, and it can't, so it keeps on walking after the carrot. The Lord didn't need that. He willingly did the will of the Father. He didn't need a carrot of joy after the resurrection held in front of him. He goes beyond Moses. He chose to become a man. Look, let me share with you one verse from the gospel according to Luke that makes this idea of instead of so clear. In Luke 11, suppose one of you is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish instead of that's auntie the same word instead of the joy set before him he won't give him 
a, a snake instead of a fish, will he? If he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? No, it's one thing in place of another. The cross in place of the heavenly joy. He left all that for you if you would trust and believe in him. If you're one of those who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he left that heavenly joy for you. What have we left for him? What have we given up for him? What earthly pleasure, even right and proper, have we denied ourselves, even once, for him? Do we sacrifice to serve? He sacrificed the glory of heaven, his life and his life's blood to serve us, that he would give even one single thought to my broken heart. We sang that. Do you really believe it? This is what he did for you. Uh, Paul, Paul, this is all new to me. I've never heard. Is there anywhere else in Scripture that teaches this truth? Sure. We sing one of these. Our brother Paul DeMano wrote a song that comes right from Philippians 2. Paul says in Philippians 2, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be tenaciously retained in his grasp, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He veiled all his glory in human flesh. As Charles Wesley writes in that Christmas carol, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That glory broke out on the Mount of Transfiguration. Read the various gospel accounts of the Mount of Transfiguration carefully. Peter's asleep. His eyelids are closed. The Lord's face shines like the sun. His clothes become white as light, and it burns through his eyelids and awakens him. That's the heavenly glory, probably greatly diminished. But still, that's what was veiled in that body. Some of his glory that he emptied himself of. Perhaps even clearer is a verse that I've quoted at different times in sharing the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Look at the exchange, one thing for another. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He exchanged richness for poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. See, it's an exchange. That's the basic idea, who instead of the joy. I've spent a lot of time on this. I hope it's a blessing to you. I hope it just fills your heart with such worship, such gratitude and appreciation for what the Lord has done for you. He left it all. I want this to come alive. I want this to burn in your heart. I want it to burn in your soul. I, I want it to motivate you on towards that final fixed point of reference, Jesus Christ. Focus on Jesus during difficult times. Jesus, who instead of the 
instead of the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Focusing on Jesus is what will help you during difficult times. Look, when I was 35, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer and I had to have surgery. I remember the night before surgery, my wife said to me, how can you be so calm? Don't you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I said to her with some bravado, I'll start worrying when the Lord starts worrying. We don't need to worry. We just need to focus on Jesus even in the difficult times. 30 years later, she would be diagnosed with cancer, and she would be the strong one. When I would cry out to God when she wasn't home, with tears in my eyes, asking God to take it from her and give it to me, I knew in my heart of hearts that she would glorify him more than I ever would. Look, everything I say to you up here, I believe in my heart of hearts. It is all true. God has been faithful. He's never failed me yet. 49 years next month walking with the Lord. And he's always been faithful. Some of you have asked, Paul, what's going on with your eyes? And my, my uh, doctor just told me that I'm losing my sight more than twice as fast as normal. Now, I can still drive, but if you don't like the way I drive, stay off the sidewalk. <laughs> Whether I can drive next year is another story. She was able to dial me in again for this year, but... You know, I don't say, oh, goody, I'm going blind. But God is faithful. I know this about our Heavenly Father. In, even in difficult times, when it comes to his children, our Father in heaven is too loving to ever do anything unkind and too wise to ever make a mistake. His way is always the best way. And, and please, brothers and sisters, if the Lord tarries and my vision gets worse and worse, if you ever see me despondent, if you ever hear me grumble and complain, please do God's work. Come to me. Correct me. Rebuke me if necessary. And get me to focus on Jesus once again. Focus on Jesus during difficult times. Focus on Jesus to finish well. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His work was done. Remember, the priests and the high priests never sat down. But Christ sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's waiting to welcome you and to give you your well done. Focus on him all the time to finish well. Let the ultimate example, the supreme example, if you don't like the word ultimate, use supreme example of Jesus. He is, goes way beyond any of those in chapter 11 and certainly way beyond those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you in chapter 13. He is the ultimate supreme example. Let Jesus inspire you to hold fast in faith. How? For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary and lose heart. 
Consider him. Oh, Paul, I think about Jesus. It doesn't really seem to help. I Think about Peter in Matthew 14, walking on the water. When he looked at Jesus, he walked on the waves. When he got distracted by the storm around him and the waves, he started to sink. As long as you focus on Jesus, no matter what trial, what storm of life comes upon you, you will never sink. You will not grow weary or lose heart. Focus on him. Consider him. Consider. Contemplate. Ponder. Think upon. Meditate on. Do this prayerfully. Look, the Psalms are fantastic. I love the Psalms. And the Psalms are often people's favorite book of the Bible for good reason. But you know what I like even more than the Psalms? Are the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, I see Jesus, the ultimate supreme example of faith. The one I need to focus on all the time. That I need to ponder and contemplate. The second point is focus on Jesus to avoid discipline. We can always do more to conquer sin in our life. The writer reminds them that even though some of them suffered the loss of house and property, they had been persecuted for their faith in Christ when they turned from Judaism to Christ, and now they're being tempted to turn back. He says, he's basically saying, look, you've already done a lot, but you can do more. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Christ did. He shed his blood. He didn't stop short of that. He shed his blood and died. You can always do more. I can always do more with God's help to conquer sin in my life. Remember, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The Lord will discipline, and we need to view it correctly. You see, they thought, oh, I'm being persecuted again. This is too much. I'm going to turn away. The writer tells them, well, you can turn away, but it might be out of the frying pan into the fire. Why? You might escape that persecution but there's going to be discipline from the Lord. He says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Two possibilities, regard lightly or faint. I remember when I was 12 years old. I turned 12 years old, and I thought, okay, I'm too old to spank. My father was a lifer in the military. Very big on discipline. And I was going to push that. I was going to test that theory because, of course, I was right. Well, I rebelled. I did exactly what he said not to. I don't even remember what it is. But here's what I remember. I remember him grabbing me, putting me across his legs, and now he's giving me a whipping. And I'm gritting my teeth. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. He stops. He realizes he's getting no reaction. So he wails on me harder. Okay, I deserved this, all right? I was deserved every 
spanking I got. I tried my parents' patience every chance I got. My mo- I still remember what my mother says. She says his name and says, you're going to hurt him. Stop. Her exact words, I remember them to this day. So emboldened by that, I turn my head and look up at him and sneer, and with disdain I say, is that the best you can do? The belt comes off. He called it the strap. And that stung. I started crying. He commenced a wailing, and I commenced a wailing. That was the last spanking he ever gave me. But the point is, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. If he's using his hand, don't ask for the strap. Okay? That's the moral to that story. Don't regard it lightly. He's holding back. He will do whatever he has to do to give loving correction. And we're going to see why. Don't faint when you're reproved by him. He never gives us more than we can handle, whether it be a trial in life or whether it be his correction, his loving, wise, gracious correction. The Lord's discipline is a sign of his love for you. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's a sign of his love. One of the most unloving things a parent can do is just let a child run wild. Turn on the electronic babysitter, let the TV or whatever, the tablet, the cell phone, some of them even have, let that be their babysitter. Never give them correction. That's one of the most unloving things you can ever do. God is a good father. We sing it, you're a good, good father. He's a perfect father. He doesn't raise spoiled brats. The Lord's discipline is inevitable. Every single child of God will receive discipline. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? It's a rhetorical question. Classic Jewish rhetorical question. The answer is none. Every son gets disciplined. None of us are perfect. We're always going to need discipline at some time. The Lord's discipline is a sign that you are his child. If you can live any way you want, sin any way you want, and there is no loving, wise, gracious discipline from God the Father, he is not your father. But if you are without discipline, of which not some, not many, but all have become partakers, if you're without that, then you're illegitimate children and not sons at all. My father never spanked any other neighborhood kids. He once boxed them in at the front porch when they were trying to light a bag of manure on our front porch for Halloween. He had the garden hose. He was in the bushes and he cut off, in true military fashion, he cut off their lines of retreat. And in late October, with it in the 40s, he hosed them down, but good, okay? But he didn't spank them. If you're without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you're not God's child at all. Be afraid. Be very afraid. The Lord's discipline is reasonable and profitable. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers 
to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Look, even though I rebelled, even though that one time I said, is that the best you can do? I respected my father. I didn't rebel at every opportunity. I had respect for him. Not perfect respect, I already admitted that. But we respect earthly authorities, our parents. Shall we not much more respect the Father of spirits and live? This is a matter of life and death. The Lord disciplines us for our eternal good. For our earthly fathers discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them. They made a judgment call. I'm grounded for two weeks. I know I may get out after one week to ten days for good behavior, early parole. Other times it was the strap. He disciplined me as seems best to him. But God our Father disciplines us not because he's angry, like some earthly fathers do, not because we simply rebelled. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. This is the reason why God's discipline is never punitive. Oh, you think you're so smart, Johnson? I'm going to show you who's in charge. That's not our Heavenly Father. He wants us to be holy. He knows holiness is good for us. He designed us. He made us. He's our creator. He knows what makes us tick. As an engineer, I knew my designs better than anyone. I knew how everything worked and interrelated. God engineered us. He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And his discipline is corrective so we can share in his holiness because holiness is good. Holiness does no harm. The Lord's discipline produces great results and blessing. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But afterwards, to those who have been trained by it, what does it do? It yields, it brings forth a harvest, a crop. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, it's for our good. It produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Who does not want peace in life? And even inner peace in the midst of the trials of life. It only comes from righteous living which is a response to God's discipline in this verse. And then our third point, focusing on Jesus results in a desire to help others. Look, if we're not focused on Jesus, we're focused on something else. And I'll tell you what that probably is nearly 100% of the time or 100% of the time. If we're not focused on God and Christ, we're focused on ourselves. Oh, yeah, we might be focused on that next power boat we want for fishing or, or the next truck or, for some women, focused on a child. They want to have a child. Boy, that's a lot higher than a boat and a truck, isn't it? 
All right? At least you can find the command of God behind that. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You know, other than the book of Second Opinions, I see no command for Johnson to get a new fishing boat or a new truck. It's not found in the Bible. Focusing on Jesus results in the desire to help others because Christ was other-centered. I always do those things that please the Father, and then everything else he did was to provide salvation for us. Glorify God, provide salvation. He didn't focus on himself. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. When we're focused on Jesus, we will want to help others. This can be a litmus test. This can be a thermometer, a barometer, a measuring stick of how focused are you and I on Jesus. How much do we want to help others? How much do we see others struggling and we go and help them in some way using whatever means God provides, words or other things? Focusing on Jesus results in a desire to help others. And then our last slide, victory is only found in correct belief and righteous living. Make straight paths for your feet. Not crooked paths. The path of righteousness is the straight path. You'll only walk the path if you know what the path is. Correct belief tells us what the path is. Righteous living walks that path. It's the only way to true spiritual healing. So we've seen, focus on Jesus like other faithful ones did. Focus on Jesus to avoid God's discipline. Focus on Jesus to help other believers succeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the supreme, ultimate example of who we should follow, who we should be like. We thank you that you did not count your own life dear and you did not resist shedding your blood, but that you shed it willingly on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and to provide salvation for as many as who would believe and trust in what you did. Dear God, would you be pleased to help us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lord, even in difficult times, help us to always unwaveringly focus on you, our supreme, ultimate example. Dear God, bless us, we pray, in this way, so that our lives might be a testimony and a blessing to you. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen.